The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Before we hear from Owen, I just wanted to mention that Rask has partnered up with Perler to help Australians on their path to financial independence. As part of this partnership, we are offering you a chance to win $1,000 in investment funds. To enter, simply create your free Perler account using the code RASK. Hi, and welcome back to ETFs for Beginners, where we catch the waves of the investing shore break while not trying to wipe out. I'm Phil Muscatello, and this is Anna Christina. Hi, Phil. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm throwing that right at you, aren't I? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. So who have we got on the podcast today? Today, we've got Surfing the Waves. See, I was trying to play off your pun there. Um, we've got our guest, Owen Raskovich. He runs Rask Australia, which is a diversified investment advice, news, research, financial education podcast, and money network empire. Owen, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Phil and Anna. It's a pleasure. And uh, that's a hell of a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> getting through all of that. It seems like we do everything and it would be aptly described as an empire. So it's my pleasure to be here and joining you both today. And great to have the emperor on. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so Rask Australia, how did it start? Yeah, sure. So it started in around about 2017. It started in the front living room of my in-law's place. And it started as kind of like a passion project. I did it for six months part-time. I started by creating animated videos with this really talented designer by the name of Sophie Weimer. And she worked with us right up until 2021. And we started creating these animated videos, like just financial education, super high quality. And the idea was that we would sell these videos to super funds or to financial advisors as like a financial literacy package. And I come from The Motley Fool, which is like this huge online ecosystem for investment advice. So I kind of knew like search engine optimization and how to create videos and make really engaging content. So what we found was that financial advisors and super funds didn't really have a need for this at the time. And so we kind of had to pivot our business model. And what we did is we kind of took the experience that we had with financial literacy and financial education and combined that with the investment research where I was very passionate. And so we created a news website, which is called RAS Media. Then we created a standalone education website, which is called RASC Education. Then we moved into like memberships. And finally, someone said to me, my friend, um, he's now based in Austin, Texas. He come to me and he said, Owen, you should start podcasts in the United States. Like people are doing podcasts. They're huge. And I was like, okay, Joe, no worries. Joe Rogan. Joe Mager. <laughs> Joe Rogan lives in Austin as well. <laughs> Joe, does he really? Yes. Okay, yeah. there we go. That's yeah, yeah, not quite in. Joe Rogan. Um, so this guy's name is Joe Mager. He was the um, chief investment officer and you could say co-founder of a company called Lakehouse Capital, which is a big investment fund in Australia. And Joe said, you know, you should interview uh, fund managers and professionals and just like extract those insights. And so I started that with the Australian Investors Podcast and it started pretty slow, but at the time people were still catching on to what podcasts were. And then sure enough, one day I thought, okay, this is going pretty well. I wonder how else we can do podcasts better. And we were really in like the minutiae of investing. We were like discounted cash flow analysis, like what makes companies great and 
the, how do you think about capital allocation? Really nerdy finance stuff, right? And then I thought, this isn't enough. Like, there's surely a bigger market out there than just people like me. And so I went to catch up with a friend in Melbourne. Her name is Bromwyn. She was doing a PhD in finance and particularly women's finances. And we met up with another girl called Kate Campbell. And we're at this pub in Melbourne. And at the end of the dinner, I, I said to Kate, I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was like a 10-part series where you could just talk about finances and it was really engaging and you know it wasn't intimidating? And she was like, yeah, that'd be fantastic. And here's how I'd do it and all this sort of stuff. And I was actually asking her if she wanted to do it with me, but she didn't think I was doing that. She just thought I was just asking for feedback. And um, I followed it up the next day. I said, no, Kate, I want to do it with you. Don't tell me who else I could do it with. I want to do it with you. And so Kate and I started on this journey. We said, okay, we'll do 10 episodes and we'll just, you know, just go with that. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, I think that podcast now is, I think it's maybe at 3 million downloads or like past that. And we're super proud of that because it's helped us reach more people, in particular, more females, and it's helped us reach a younger demographic as well. And that's basically the story. I don't want to bore you with any more details, but um, that's what we do. And we've enrolled about 16,000 students into our courses, and it's been a hell of a ride in the last five years. The best part about that is hearing how your company has pivoted. You know, like you started as a side project and it has evolved over time. I know you have tons of resources on your site. And for anyone who is interested in getting into investing, can you tell us your backstory of how you got into investing and and kind of tie that into the company as well? Yeah, sure. So I think Phil and I may have talked about this in the past, but I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a, a family that invested. So we didn't even really talk about money. In fact, money was a part of my life, which was a source of extreme anxiety. We recently did an offsite with our team at Rask, and I said to them, it's funny because Rask actually started, it came about as a result of my own anxiety about money because I wanted to understand why I was so anxious about money, why I felt like I was constantly fearful when the topic of money got brought up. And I thought, surely I'm not the only one that thinks this way. Like, surely I'm not the only one that has unhealthy biases towards money. And sure enough, I wasn't. Like, there are millions of people around the world that need good, sound money coaching, if you like. And um, I started out studying engineering and social science at university. And it was actually my friend who was training to be a nurse, of all things. He said to me, hey, I've got a couple thousand dollars. Why don't we do this thing called investing? You know, we can just invest in the stock market. He had an uncle that was kind of interested in it. Almost at this exact time, The Motley Fool had launched in Australia. And we started reading their newsletters, which were free. And he's like, well, why don't we just invest in this? And literally, we opened the newspaper together. This is the Australian Financial Review. At the time, you could open it to like the middle and it would have the stock prices of every company on the ASX. It's like 2,000. And... We basically, it was like some witchcraft or wizardry, if you like. We opened it up and basically just randomly, I said, close your eyes and point on the, the, the newspaper, the company that we're going to invest in. And he pointed at one and, I, and it was like, it went up like two or 3% the day before. So it was printed in the newspaper. I said, no, no, no. What's the one around that that's gone up more than that? And there was one, there was this little, I think it was called Indo Mines. There's this tiny little Indonesian mining company that went up like 10% the day before. And we said, okay, with that one. And he put money in it. Turns out he didn't lose that much, which I'm grateful for because it was kind of my influence. But that basically started us on this investing journey. And then from there, I then saved up some money and started investing. My first share was NAB because I couldn't think of anything else. I just thought I'll just buy that one. And we eventually got a job at the Motley Fool as freelancers because they put out an email that said, we're looking for people to write on contract. And so I did that for a few years. 
and my investing got better and better. I eventually studied a few degrees and whatever. And I got a job as an analyst here in Melbourne on Collins Street at a pretty prestigious firm. And it was there that I realized that there was a massive disconnect between professional investing and what we do as mums and dads and as individuals. There is so much information on that side of the table and not nearly enough on this side of the table. And so that's where podcasts like this one, like ours, play a huge role in bridging that divide, giving people the information they need. So that's basically how I came to investing. My first investment in NAB was good. The 10 or 20 that followed were quite terrible in hindsight. I remember that I got really lucky on one investment. I went into a broker report and I found the company with the highest valuation and the lowest share price. And I put $2,000 into that. And just through pure luck, it went to $20,000. So it went up more than 10 times in a year, which by the way, is extremely rare. And I was super, super confident and overconfident from that. I thought, well, this is as easy as it gets. You know, This is like free money. And over the next two years, I proceeded to give back all of those gains as my humility rose and my confidence went backwards. So that's basically my journey. It was one through trial and error, trial by fire, but I was extremely lucky to meet the people along the way that I did that helped me to get where I am today. Gee, that's great. I, I usually use astrology to find um, my random picks. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have been more effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. There's actually an incredible fund in New York uh, that bases recommendations on astrology as well. That's a really good read. I might even post the Twitter account. He's great. Please share that. That would be great. It's the next RAS course, Investing by Astrology. <laughs> so you were pretty driven or you were pretty focused on your journey into investing. But um, it's very hard for some people who haven't got that. They sort of wake up one day and think, well, I've actually got to do something. I've got to get my financial act together. What are some of the barriers that people experience in approaching investing? The first thing is the learning curve because it seems extremely steep. It's like um, if you remember back to high school maths where they did like a tangent curve where it starts off really steep and then it kind of like falls away over time. And that's what it feels like for most people. But the reality is that the more you know, you realize that the simpler your investing should become. And so what I found is there's this thing called a humility curve and you can go out and Google it. And a humility curve is kind of like, imagine you start off at the bottom of the axis, the bottom left corner, and then you go along and it peaks and then it falls away rapidly. And that's how I describe the way most people invest. They start with this overwhelming feeling, they get a good feeling, they get another good feeling. And it's kind of like, almost like an addiction because you feel, oh, this is a rush from investing, whether it goes up, whether it goes down. And then we overcomplicate the things that we do. And then we, after a year or two, we realize, oh, it's actually not that hard. We can just invest sensibly, focus on low costs, focus on a diversified portfolio. And once you realize that that's the learning curve and that's the journey you have to go on, it becomes a lot easier. So there are a few takeaways from that. The first is that you're going to make mistakes. People are really fearful of making mistakes with money, justifiably so. But you can you can invest very small amounts to begin with. Like there's micro investing. You could what we call paper trade, which is where you don't actually buy anything and you just follow the share prices. And the other thing that really catches people off is I guess the perception of what investing is. And the perception amongst most people of what investing is, is, oh, it's just like gambling, isn't it? And the way I kind of conquer that, I guess, fear and perception of investing being just totally uncertain is that the difference between investing and gambling is that you actually own something. If you go down to the horse races and you put a bet on, you don't actually own anything. And the difference is the people that tend to get wealthy at those meetups are the people that own the horses. 
So what you can do via the stock market is actually own the horse. So even if it goes up or down, you still own it. And you know, if you buy a share of Apple, you're a very small owner of Apple. And I think once you start to treat your investing as ownership of businesses, like once that light bulb comes on, you'll think, oh, wow, it makes sense because these are wonderful businesses. These are fantastic organizations that do wonderful things and create value for society. Once you realize that, I think it's like a light bulb moment and you go, okay, I just keep buying more of these wonderful companies and I just keep holding them and eventually they're going to make more and more profit because that's what companies do. If they don't make a profit, they go out of business and that's okay too. So I'd say a learning curve is the first thing. And with that is like the perception of what investing is and isn't. I mean, we could go on all day, but that's the basis of it. And we can do it thanks to like organizations like Perla now where it's you can buy an ETF and you can diversify instantly, basically. So that's wonderful too. And it's important, I think, to keep your sports bet app away from your uh, brokerage app as well on your phone. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So let's have a look at ETFs because I think we're heading towards ETFs being the name of the podcast, obviously. And um, we're talking about ESG. We wanted to talk about ESG and the focus that a lot of people have on ESG and wanting to reflect their values. Now, we're going to be putting a a post and a link to a PDF as well in this podcast because you've got a checklist to do this. But um, just give us an overview of your thoughts in this area, please, Owen. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I can say this, obviously, we are facing many challenges as a society and as a planet, one of those being the E in the environment. That's the E in ESG. The second one is where over time, you can kind of trace back the biggest and best companies. I'm going to say best, I mean, like most profitable companies over time. And what we can see is that many of those companies are moving further away from what can I take to what value can I create? And so that's kind of like if we, if this was a political circle, what we would be saying is companies are kind of moving further away from the right to slightly towards the left. So they're focusing on creating value as much as they are on capturing value. And that's the S, that's society's values, if you like. That's the E, S, and G. The final one is governance. And this is basically, we want companies to be more accountable. And so- This is like independent boards. It's like payer quality, those types of things. And over time, what we've seen is this started as like a a kind of like a fad, if I could say that. Like it started with, oh, you know, ESG is great. ESG is wonderful, but it's not really like a thing that's going to stand the test of time. Now we know that is complete hogwash and it actually is a material thing. Tens of billions of dollars is invested in ESG focused strategies every month. And Overall, I think the number is now well past a trillion dollars globally that's invested in strategies that focus on ESG. The myth earlier on was that ESG didn't make a difference. And I think a lot of studies now, including academic papers, have come out. There was one, I believe, in 2017, which was quite influential in this, basically came out and showed that if you invest in a high-impact ESG investment fund, you could save the equivalent in carbon emissions of a return trip to New York from Sydney. So what that basically means is like if you just choose an ESG-focused fund, you are making a material difference. And in fact, I don't mean any ill will towards the vegans in the room or what have you, but you could make the crude comparison that it is more effective to invest in an ESG-focused way than it is to become vegan, just from the pure E in the emissions part of this conversation. Now, I'm not saying don't you know, become a vegan because you were thinking of it. But it's just an example of like, you can do more than just what you eat or what you consume or how you recycle. You can actually invest your portfolio in a way that's effective. And when I say effective, I mean that a lot of the myth around this is that ESG investing is not effective insofar as getting you returns. And it certainly is. At least over the past 20 to 30 years, we've seen that investing in a way that is ESG aware 
has actually had a positive impact on returns over time. And that's not just true for the stock market. It's also true for the bond market. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, we can have a positive impact on the planet, on society, on companies themselves. We can make good returns while we do that. It's not that expensive to do it anymore. Then it's kind of like, well, why wouldn't I at least be open to that? So that's how I think about it. And we can dive into what is considered ESG and what's not, but that's how I think about it from a big picture perspective. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, then it makes sense to ask the next question. What is considered ESG and what's not? Yeah. And that's the natural question is a lot of people think I want to do this, but how do I do it? And the unfortunate reality is we're still early in this journey as an industry where some of the reporting from companies isn't what we would want it to be in terms of like there aren't standardized rules right around the world. There aren't people that or organizations that have set really high standards that are adopted by everyone. However, we are seeing that emerge now. As this industry spawns, we're seeing more and more companies respond to investor demands for ESG-related reporting. And then that is then forcing the investors to report that back to their investors and their clients. And by that in turn is then telling the companies to speak to their suppliers and to their end like suppliers, how are you thinking about ESG? Because I have to report it to my investors and those investors have to report it to their clients and so on and so forth. So what we're seeing now, we're in this early day, in the early days where some companies report like, you know, triple bottom line, they have reporting on their ESG factors in their annual report. So that's oftentimes at the back, or if it's really impressive, it might be towards the front. And you'll see that there, a lot of organizations have net zero targets. The company that's really interesting as a case study is actually a company called Salesforce, which is the massive global software company. And they commit to donating some of their profits, some of their time, and you know having a positive carbon reporting suite. So there are different levels of carbon emissions reporting. And I can include the, a link in the, in the show notes, but basically there's three different levels. And it measures, is the company like reporting its emissions and I guess, having a neutral impact itself, how are the suppliers and how is like the, I guess, the products used as well. So it's like the entire supply chain. So that's getting really good. Here in Australia, just one final thing I'll add on the end here is that here in Australia, we're seeing the emergence of a lot of ethical funds, so ethical ETFs and ethical superannuation funds. Some of the big names include Australian Super, Aware Super, Future Super. These bodies in themselves are fantastic because at least they're bringing ESG to the forefront. And there's some fantastic reports on their website. So with your super fund, you can go to their website and you can check to see what they're invested in just to make sure that it fits with what you would consider to be sustainable or ethical. And sorry, I said that was the final point, but there's one final thing here, which is like, what is ethical? What isn't ethical? And I would say, so here's an interesting question. If I can throw one back to you, this is me asking you a question, which doesn't normally happen. Would either of you consider a company that does software, right? For mining companies, so coal mining companies, to make them more efficient, is that ethical or unethical? 
<laughs> I like how we're both silent, Phil. It's a great question because it makes you question your own values, right? Mm -hmm. Like your own personal values. I might have different values than Phil and so forth. And so it could be that anything that has to do with mining or coal or whatnot is unethical. Whereas you can also look on the other side and say, hey, if anything is is being implemented to create a more environmental kind of sustainable way of doing business, maybe that is more aligned with my values. So um, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it is about, about really diving deep into what your own values are, like what your ethics are and how do you align with that? Phil, what's your answer? Well, I'd, I'd uh, answer that with another question. And that is um, if uh, an armaments manufacturer is supplying arms to Ukraine to fight Russia, would you invest in a weapons company? Mm. Yeah, see, that's fantastic. And this is the kind of questions we need to ask. These are conversations that we're talking about at the moment. It's actually a lot more nuanced than uh, people think, you know, when you start diving into it. Yeah, and so the way that I kind of approach this is I basically drew the line. I've said, okay, well, what's ethical to me? And then what's like society's expectation? And so ethical to me, and if you look up the definition in Google or wherever you get your definitions, you'll find that it's like based on like personal principles and value systems, right? Whereas when we look at, I guess, the S in the ESG and like the societal impacts, there are certain standards that society sets. So there are things like we want to minimize fossil fuels because obviously it's leading to climate change, right? We don't want child labor. We don't want cluster munitions or be involved with any type of company that does something that is considered like war crimes or anything like that, right? So we don't want any of that. And that's a society, that's an expectation set by society. And so you could draw the line and you could say, there are values for me and there are values for society. There's something that we can all agree on and there's something that we will probably debate till the end of the day. And for me, it comes back to, okay, ethics and ethical investing is about my principles. Sustainability and sustainable investing is about society's principles. And so if you think about it like that, if you approach a product like an investment fund or something, and they say, we are an ethical investment fund, it's truly only ethical to you if those values that they follow match your values. So in any other case, it's probably more considered a sustainable investment or an ESG focused investment. It's not necessarily a representation of your ethics. That said, some of the big super funds and ETFs do a great job of highlighting really important values that are common across most people. So things like child labor or excessive fossil fuels and so on and so forth. So there's that little PDF that Phil mentioned there that you can download and it's just a checkbox. And the way I incorporate this into my own investing is basically I say, what's really important to me? And I just don't go there with my investing, frankly. Like I just think, okay, I'll keep that to one side. That's not in line with my ethics. In fact, it may not even be in line with sustainable principles. There was one final body that I'll call out here in Australasia. It's called the RIAA. And they basically put their badge, like a CanStar approval rating, they put their badge on investment strategies. And you can visit their website and they talk about how the funds that are considered sustainable or ethical by them or responsible, they report how they're performing. And what you'll find is over the past 10 years is that the funds that have got that RIAA badge on them have performed much better than those that haven't. So I think that's a good endorsement of the way they approach it as well. So much to think about when uh, investing in ESGs, Owen. For anyone who wants to get started, so if you're new to investing and you're like, I want to be as ethical as possible in line with my own values, 
where do you start? I mean, besides your checklist, but what are some things that new investors should consider? Yeah, sure. So that checklist is a place you could start. There are two ways to approach it and two ways we do it as an industry. One way is we focus on what do we want in our portfolio. That's called positive screening. That's where we find things to put in, positive. And then there's another thing that we do called negative screening, which is the opposite. We say that there's basically like a blacklist and we do not invest in them. So if you just think about that, so we've got a list of things we definitely don't want and the things that we would like to have in if we can. You can then go and you can take that kind of investment strategy and you can visit the Superfund websites. So you can visit you know, the RIAA and they mention them. Um, there's an ethical advisors website in Australia. And what you can do is you can visit them and then they've got some sort of rating or some research on funds that are trying to be ethical. Here in Australia, there are some big ETF providers. So we've got BetaShares offer some ethical funds. They're Ethi and Fair Funds are, I think, the two biggest. We've got Vanguard offer some as well. VanEck offers some. And I think iShares are offering them now. So there's a bunch of different ETF providers that do it too, if you want to do that through your brokerage account. Yeah, let's not forget E-Invest and IMPQ. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So there's a bunch of them now. Now you can look at those and you can explore them. Each of those ETFs will have on their website a methodology that they follow for how they put companies in or how they screen companies out. If you're looking at banking, so the way you bank and think about that, there's a website in Australia called Market Forces, and that reports on the big banks, or not just the big banks, but all banks, and how they approach financing companies that might be considered ethical or unethical. So that's another great website, all free. And basically, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that the ETF or the super fund isn't greenwashing. And that's the idea that they've put an ethical label on it, and then they say, we're going to charge you a little bit more because it's ethical for no reason other than it's just in the name. And the way you can check that is you can go to the website of any of the super funds or ETF providers and you can see what's inside the portfolio. So let's just, as a hypothetical example, let's say you're looking at a BetaShares ETF, you go to their website, ETFs have to list what they're invested in and you can go in there and you can say, okay, there's this company in there. Oh wait, actually, I don't think that's ethical for me. That's really unethical for me or something like that. And then you can say, okay, well, let's go to the next ETF that maybe it's from Vanguard or you know, e-invest or whatever. And then you go through the same process again. And you might find that it's not perfect, but you might be of the opinion that, okay, it's not perfect, but at least I'm trying and that's good. When we did a survey of our students and of our members, we found that most people, and I think it was something like 80 to 90% said that even if you can't be fully ethical, it's worth at least trying to invest some of your money ethically. And I think that's true of all of us. We really, if we can, why wouldn't we? So I think that's a good starting point. You've got the ETFs, you've got the super funds, you can use the Market Forces website to look at banking. And there's um, plenty of market forces, to use that uh, term, that are acting on the ESG dynamic. I mean, BlackRock, who is a huge international ETF provider and investment house, they actually put a lot of pressure on company boards to um, come up with their ESG rankings. And also, just as another example, the Australian Shareholders Association, they, a lot of their members who are not the youngest, but um, once they've done surveys, ESG is one of the highest priorities for them because they've got the money, but they want to make sure that their money's being invested for a better future for their kids and their grandkids as well. So there's pressure coming from many different areas on companies to follow some sort of ESG guidelines at the moment. Absolutely, there is. And you made a really good point there about the Shareholders Association, Phil. Anyone can attend a company AGM, annual general meeting, 
there'll be a notice put out in your brokerage account or on the company's website. And if you're a shareholder and you have your shareholder number, you can log in virtually or go in person to the AGM. And every year, the Shareholders Association asks these hard questions. So they're the ones that represent investors and anyone can do it, but they just take it on themselves. And they ask the board of directors, what are you doing? And the CEO might respond or the board might respond and then they can follow up. If it's not good enough, here's my opinion. And so we're seeing a lot more of that. And I think it's fantastic, right? Because it's got to start somewhere. Five or 10 years ago, we talked about ethical investing. The older investors in the room might say something like, oh yeah, but it doesn't actually mean anything because there's not that many of us that are going to say anything. But now it's in the consciousness, thanks to people speaking up. And we're seeing that pressure. We're seeing companies choose a slightly more expensive, but sustainably aligned supplier of goods versus one that might be cheap coming from overseas where they can't monitor the ESG impacts. And so that is eventually trickling through and we're seeing that benefit for all of society now. So that's great. That trend is fantastic. We're seeing that at Perler as well, but actually we're seeing it with our younger investors more so than our older investors. So our younger investors are much more interested in it. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a lot of women are interested in that. They're two times more likely to invest in in ethical or ESG funds as well. A big question though that people have around that is what are the returns like? Yeah. So we can look at basically everything here. We don't have to look at just stocks and the stock market, but What we've seen over the past 20 years or so is that the companies that do report their ESG criteria and they do meet the kind of guides that are set for them, they have performed overall better. Now, that's not for every company. I think investors fall foul to the trap of, oh, this is an ethical investment. Oh, this invests in lithium, which is renewable energy. And they somehow get caught up in this story that that's somehow going to produce good returns. So we're not here to say that Investing ethically makes you money all the time. But what if you apply in a sensible way, many studies have shown, I think there was a study from AQR, which is a big London-based investment firm that basically showed that it can add up to a few percentage points a year. And then there's another study that I saw, which basically showed that in times of market distress, so say like the GFC or times like that where things are really uncertain, What we see in the bond market, which by the way, is so much bigger than the stock markets around the world. This is like the debt market. This is where companies go for debt. It's where governments go to raise money, et cetera. And what we saw in that market is that the cost of the debt is less for companies that have an ESG focus. So they have cheaper access to capital markets, to debt markets, so they can fund their operations. And the reason that happens is because let's say you're with Australian Super, I don't know, example, and Australian Super has told their members, we want to invest in a billion dollars worth of green bonds in the next year. They'll actively go out and try and find companies that are willing to offer green bonds. And so they're willing to take a lower clip if they can get that supply. So that's why the debt is cheaper. And then on the stock market side, we get slightly more returns through diversified portfolios. So overall, I think that the expectations can be that we're going to at least match the market or provided you don't overpay with fees in your fund, but we may even do better in some market conditions. Now, in the past 20 years, we've had low interest rates, which might have helped, but um, I would say that this is not necessarily a fad. It's not necessarily thematic. I'd say this is like a structural change in industry that is something that's going to be with us for a very long time. Well, why don't we talk about the Perla partnership with Rask? Yeah, sure. So, There's a mutual alignment between Perla and Rask. So our mission at Rask is to 
help the world invest better through like knowledge and education. So we try and do that in whatever way we can through podcasts or through courses or you know, even in-person events. We recently participated in the Get Rich Slow Club with Perla and that's where I was able to meet Anna and, and the rest of the team and it was wonderful. And we've come together now, Rask and Perla, basically to say that we are aligned on this kind of financial literacy and financial education movement, but also to help people invest. And we simply, at Rask, we simply can't do that. We don't have the knowledge or the tools to create a platform and create an ecosystem for people to invest their money better. So that's where the partnership with Perla comes in and the wonderful team. We can now offer education and we can help our investors and our members and people that listen to our podcast move through to Perla and join Perla take up an account and start investing in a way that aligns with their values. And the way we're doing that, we're celebrating. We're celebrating this month and we are doing a giveaway, or I should say Pearl is doing a giveaway, a $1,000 giveaway to the lucky investor who opens a Pearl account using the coupon code RASK, that's R-A-S-K, and places a trade. And this is before the end of May, 2022. But I think what's really cool is that even if you don't win the $1,000, everyone gets some credit, which can be used on brokerage, meaning that you can get a certain number of trades for free. So I think that's really cool. If you're investing anyway over the next six months, I don't know why you wouldn't join and just place your trades through Perla. And this is from my perspective, from Rask's perspective, we have aligned with Perla for a long-term benefit. We don't make referral fees. We don't make affiliate fees, depending on how many people sign up. We don't want to have that kind of, I guess you could say in a way, a conflict in our our business model. So what we've done is we've said with Perla, we're going to be partnering with you for many months and we want to help all of our members grow, help all of our investors get more from their investing. And that's why we've come together. Hopefully we can do some events. Hopefully we can do more podcasts together. So it's just a mutual alignment and yeah, it's fantastic to be working with Perla. Fantastic. Oh, and thanks so much for being on here. If anyone wants any more information, where can they find it? Yeah, sure. So you can head to rask.com.au. That's rask.com.au. And if you want to find out more about the partnership with Perla and the giveaway, you can head to perla.com and use the coupon code RASK when you sign up and create an account. And yeah, we've got fantastic resources over on RASK. But also thank you guys for having me on the show. It's always so lovely to speak to fellow investors who are on this journey through podcasts and through whatever means to help others invest better. Oh, and thank you so much. It was extremely informative for anyone who's interested in ESGs. And um Thanks for being here. Yeah, Owen, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great to see you again. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Anna. It's really great, the work that you're doing and um, ETFs for Beginners. Subscribe if you haven't already. There's a free nudge for everyone. It's a fantastic channel. So thanks for what you're doing for our industry and for everyone that listens. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.